This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For over two decades, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who in their research and studies contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. Today, there is a growing understanding of the power of data integration to solve vexing and entrenched public problems and the value of seeing the whole person across their many touch points in the public service system. Over the last decade, data and analytic capacity in federal, state, and local government has advanced rapidly, notably since the 2019 enactment of the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act of 2018. Federal agencies subject to law appointed chief data officers evaluation officers and statistical officials and have begun to implement the required actions under the federal data strategy, such as creating inventories of data assets and creating learning agendas to improve data literacy in agencies. Most recently, the COVID-19 pandemic has clearly demonstrated the importance and value of being able to share data quickly between levels of government. What is the value of intergovernmental data sharing? What are the challenges to sharing data across government? And how can we advance intergovernmental data sharing? Today, we'll explore these questions and more with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, Silo Busting, the challenges and success factors for sharing intergovernmental data. Jane, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. I'm excited to be with you. Jane, your recent report for the IBM Center, Silo Busting, the Challenges and Success Factors for Sharing Intergovernmental Data. I was wondering, what prompted your interest in this area, and how did you conduct your research? Well, thanks for asking, because I feel like if I have a superpower, it's curiosity. And it was really curiosity that got me into this topic. And, you know, I have another report that I did for the IBM Center a couple of years ago, and it started the same way with wondering wow, what can I read about this topic? And the topic being getting beyond the awesome innovations in data that we see that exist in just one entity, but thinking about when we most powerfully make change in government, it's when we span boundaries, right? So you can't really solve homelessness just by thinking about where will the person sleep tonight, but you think about what kind of job can I get that person? Do they need health? Do they need mental health? You know, and it's like a really complicated puzzle solving. And I thought, how are we using data to do that? 
And I wanted to read what someone else wrote, but I couldn't really find this um, piece that I wanted to read. And so that's how I decided to pursue this topic of research on my own and just look for what are the great examples? Because they're out there, but there aren't, there weren't enough of them. And so I thought the purpose of this paper is to shine a light on some great successes so that we can let people know, hey, it's possible. It's kind of hard, but it's doable. And let's try to amplify and do some more. So Jane, you acknowledge in your report, there's been impressive progress in advancing the use of data in government. Uh, but there is still a gap between what could be and what is. Perhaps you could outline what that gap is. Oh, yeah. So, um, I mean, I think we've all seen, you know, this pandemic has been devastating at an economic level, at an emotional level, at, you know, tearing apart our the fabric of so many communities. But it's also been a way for us to see both what can be truly awesome with data and what can be shockingly bad, right? So um, uh, one of my favorite newspaper headlines is one that said, this was a year or so ago, uh, that said one in three uh, coroner's reports are wrong. And then that, you know, from the National Association of People Who Do um, Autopsies or something or other. Um, And then the newspaper had to retract that because even that statistic about how inaccurate they were was also wrong. So, um, you know, at, at the at the base level of data entry, no one wants to make a mistake. No one thinks that omitting certain things is a good idea. But you know, if you take the case of death certificates, who issues them? Doctors, sometimes coroners. You know, they can be. You know, in some parts of the U.S., you don't need need to have any medical background to be the one that signs a death certificate. And, uh, you know, if you're a busy doctor in an ER and you sign it quickly, you might not go through all the steps of putting down the cause of death. And so what we realized at the beginning of COVID is that how do we even know if we're accurately counting the number of people who are dead? And that's really important. Um, so, so, so we've seen on the one end, data gaps and accuracy um, you know, partly because when we start counting stuff, we don't always know what's going to matter. You know, in my home state of Massachusetts, we had a huge, huge uh, disparity in who's getting COVID, who's getting really sick, who's dying. And racial and ethnic disparities were obvious, but not well counted. So it wasn't until our governor put in an emergency executive order that we went from 28% of hospitalization data having racial, racial and ethnic information to 88%. Why? Because it mattered. And so, you know, the effort was put out there to improve accuracy, uh, to, to gather the data. So, so I guess I said, you know, there's, there's a gap between what there is at the, um, you know, at the more, uh, complicated end. And then if you look at what, you know, the, the dashboards that, you know, almost every big city, state, county has a COVID dashboard. And some of them are awesome where they're blending different 
types of data on the back end invisible to the user, but that we get to see this real-time update on where the problem is and how it's being solved and, you know, where's the PPE and how many beds are available in the hospitals. And so COVID has allowed us to see both the amazing things that can be done with integrating data and the challenges we still have to face, you know, the, the fax machines that are spitting out, you know, a thousand uh, faxes a day that then have to get a hand entered into data systems that give us a week and a half between when someone tests positive and when we can start to do the contact tracing. So um, in a nutshell, COVID has exposed the, the good and the bad and the ugly in terms of our data and technology systems. Uh, Jane, your report focuses on the most complex form of data sharing, and that is called intergovernmental data sharing. Before we delve into the key aspects of your report, would you define for us what is meant by data sharing and then walk us through the level of complexity for data sharing? Sure. Um, so data sharing is not new. I mean, uh, boy, not long after I got my driver's license, I got pulled over Um in a state that wasn't my own home state. And, you know, it was so long ago that those data systems weren't at that time integrated, but now, um, you know, boy, I hope no one's into this and wondering about my current driving record. I'm currently a very safe driver, but at any rate, so data sharing has existed for decades in kind of one-off queries, you know, does Jane have any outstanding warrants against her that should require us to detain her in jail when we pull her over for a traffic stop, Um, you know, apply for uh, benefits and there's a query to a database, you know, am I eligible? So there's lots of data sharing that's gone on for a long time. That's kind of a one question, one answer query to a database and get a response. That's not new. So that's kind of a sort of basic level of data sharing. And then there's a more complicated data sharing, which is something we've seen the rise of in the last five to 10 years, where it's bringing together different sources of data within an entity. So, okay, you know, the city of Chicago put together 33 different data elements, most of them from their own 311 system, but also, you know, weather reports and uh, inspection data um, to come up with an algorithm that allowed them to be 20% more efficient in uh, identifying rodent infestations. And so they were able to improve public safety, public health uh, with data. But it was all coming from the same city, right? So we have really basic data sharing, which is sharing one piece of information in a one-off. Then we have complicated data sharing, which is pulling from a, a lot of different places within an entity. And then there's the most complicated, which is what I call intergovernmental, which is sharing from different levels of government. And, you know, people outside government often don't understand that, you know, we don't at the city level easily talk to state or county or federal, you know, sometimes we, sometimes we actively don't share with our counterparts in government. So that's what I really wanted to examine with this paper is what are the ways that people can break out of those silos and share data across the boundaries of government? So Jane, the ability of curious public servants to devise innovative methods that connects data across the silos of government, you know, is not new. And over the years, two models have been developed to operationalize such a system. Can you tell us more about these two models? 
Sure. So, uh, you know, the way I conceptualize the two models of government data sharing are essentially, um, you know, not quite internal and external, but it's really, uh, if you think about the concept from the book Reinventing Government from uh, my dear friend and advisor, David Osborne, the book that came out in the 90s and talked about the difference in government between steering and rowing. So I think any kind of government data sharing project should be steered by government. Now, who does the rowing is really the question about what kind of model do you have? Do you have a think tank, a university, maybe a private partner that's doing the actual connection of data points, the actual data cleansing, the standardization, the analytics? Is it an outside entity or do we bring that capacity into government? Do we train people? Do we um, figure out ways to get the pay scales in government to accommodate data scientists and statisticians and uh, people who know machine learning and artificial intelligence? Um, so I am agnostic as to which model. I think that data can make government better in ways that are just profoundly valuable to our society and bringing greater security and safety and health and well-being, um, you know, better education for children, you know. And to me, it doesn't matter whether the actual day-to-day -day crunching of data is done by government employees or by those who are overseen and contracted uh, by the government. And I think every state, local, county, federal agency has to decide, can they get the resources to do it internally? Can they attract the talent? Can they retain the talent? You know, we got about an 18 month uh, average tenure of chief data officers in city government. So it's, it's a little bit longer in, in federal, but, you know, so thinking about retaining talent and then also thinking about search capacity. You know, can you, can you quickly bring on more people? That's something that's much easier to, to, to sort of expand and contract the supply of resources when you're having a think tank or a um, university. Um, and frankly, you know, if you want to get access to the supercomputers owned by the university or the cloud computing capacity, um, you, you can get small bits or large bits of access to uh, tremendously valuable resources uh, by contracting out. But, but the advantage of having it internal to government is that you have complete control over the data and the, and the work. So I think there are pluses and minuses to both, but the key is really just to optimize the use of data in government to make government more customer responsive, more efficient, uh, and to, to achieve important public goals. What is the value of intergovernmental data sharing? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. 
The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center report responding to global health crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, silo-busting the challenges and success factors for sharing intergovernmental data. So Jane, in, in the previous segment, we'd set the context around what data sharing across government looks like. Uh, now I'd like to turn to some of the challenges. And one thing you acknowledge in your report is one of the biggest challenges to doing this successfully is not the technology issue, but it's the issue of overcoming people, process, and culture. So why is people, process, and culture more challenging than technology? Mm, great question. Coming off the year 2020, I think we're all familiar with the concept of fear, right? The fear of the coronavirus and, you know, political divisions and all kinds of things. But uh, to me, um, I don't want to oversimplify to say all bad behavior comes from fear, but fear is a big driver. And a lot of people don't want to share their data because they're afraid that, you know, if I share my data with you and you see that there are data entry errors, there's missing data, or there are so many people who are afraid of where the errors lurk in their data that they don't want to share it. And, you know, the, the big data analytics crowd talks a lot about predictive analytics and data mining. And I have a different use for the word mining, which is people say, you can't have it, it's mine. Right. So mine, mine, data mining. Um, so I think that this reluctance to share data is is complex because it's it's partly I'm afraid my data has errors. It's partly what well, what if you use my data and try to twist it in a way that it makes it me look like I'm not doing my job? What if I'm afraid of losing my job? And um, you know, what what if you take the data and and don't understand my notations in it and, and you use it to come up with um, conclusions that are incorrect. And then I have to spend a whole bunch of time backpedaling and explaining and, you know, and, and, and sometimes there's a fear that, oh, you know, this data is patient protected or law enforcement sensitive or, you know, security, privacy. No, no, we can't share it because what if it ever got, you know, got out? And those are so legitimate, those fears. Um, but one of the things that I highlight in the paper is an example in Massachusetts where crisis, which, you know, crisis is often the engine of innovation, but we had a terrible, you know, Massachusetts likes to think we're first in many things, you know, with our very, very many smart people and, and you know, tech companies and innovations here, but we were for a while first in opioid overdoses and our governor and our legislature got very focused and uh, set, out, set forth seven data questions that had to be answered by a certain deadline. And it turned out that those data questions could not be answered by any one single data source. And so 
Uh, nothing like a deadline with the legislature looming and the governor constantly checking in on progress for this interagency working group that in a, you know, my state of Massachusetts, we're very good at the data mining. No, 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 it's mine. You can't have it. Um, but 23 agencies who had resisted sharing data for so long, uh, because we had this legislative mandate, they had to. And the working group came up with protocols that went well beyond any statutory privacy and security requirement where data was matched on the fly, you know, person level data. Jane was in this treatment facility, had overdose on this date, had had incarceration on this date, you know, all the different services linked together at the person level for, you know, data insight. And even the data scientists running the algorithms couldn't see the linked data because it was hidden behind a firewall, linked on the fly and then kept separately. So the most secure government data exchange that I know of, and it got around these fears and, you know, probably only because they had this big deadline and the governor breathing down their neck, was it able to be accomplished? So I get that the fears around privacy and security are driving some of the reluctance to share data, but there are models out there. Um, you know, FedRAMP is another good example of how data can be shared in the cloud. It can be linked. Scholars can gather insights and, um, you know, and we can really make important policy changes, you know, back to the Massachusetts opioid one, until they were able to link these 23 different data sets, they didn't know things like that people coming out of prison in that very short window right after leaving were 23 times more likely than the general public to die of an opioid overdose. Well, when you have statistics like that, you can do programming that targets specific moments in time when people are particularly vulnerable. You know, they were able to identify the increased risk for people who are homeless, for postpartum women who just delivered babies who had addiction problems. There were so many ways that services could be targeted based on the data. So, you know, nothing like saving lives with data. So Jane, what are the other key challenges to sharing data across government that you note in your IBM Center report? I don't want to be negative, but you know, the pro- there are lots of problems and this is, this is why it's hard. So there's a lack of data standardization. There are piles and piles of data on paper and, you know, this resistance to, um, to data sharing, but also just resistant to change. I mean, I'm doing over my kitchen now. It's been 21 years that I've lived with a kitchen that I hated. I'm as resistant to change as the next person. And in government, we don't exactly have incentives to be cutting edge. Our incentives are typically to maintain the status quo. That's how we keep our jobs in government. So, I mean, the last time I upset the status quo in government, I was in a room full of guys with guns and I, you know, got a little scared, you know. It, 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 there's, there's really a lot of downside and not as much upside career-wise for us to take risks when we're in government. So lots of challenges, but, um, but there are also so many successes because there are some amazing, brave, wonderful people out there in government who are spending their time and their talent and their energy making things better. And it's just so much fun for me to get to write about it. Jane, what would it be like if government data systems could easily link to one another, if data was seamlessly connected across all of government? Well, once upon a time, uh, and I begin that way because really, like, I, I think that, 
it's, it's sort of a fairy tale, but it's not a fairy tale. It's a, it's a thing that could happen. Right. Um, but I have this vision for if, if government systems were all seamlessly linked, let's say two people want to get married and they walk into city hall. I mean, you know, once coronavirus is over and we can walk into a city hall again, but you know, you could walk into city hall with us with a, a soon to be spouse and walk up to the city clerk and say, you know, like a marriage license, and then you get the marriage license. And then the city clerk says, okay, well, you know, and then they do the ceremony and they say, anyone, you know, just one of you or both of you want to change your name, swipe your driver's license, up comes federal, state, and local uh, identifying information. Yes, I want to change my name. Uh, does one of you want to change your address? Bing, bing, bing. One transaction on that happy moment, you know, people get married and then have to spend all this time changing this and that with all the different levels of government, change their uh, tax filing status, status and address and name. And, um, but what if you could just in that moment, that happy moment for the couple where the government says like, I got this, you go have fun. I'm going to change your name with the state, with the city, with the feds. That'd be pretty cool. So we're not there yet, but there are, there, you know, there are ways we could get there. So Jane, the data sharing examples you outline in your IBM center report demonstrate what is in essence a step toward a customer-oriented government, personalized and responsive. Now, I was wondering, in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, how have digital tools enabled rapid responses? Oh, gosh, it's amazing. Um, so well, I'll, I'll give you an example in, um, in Boston. And I think what's important here is to realize that when you see something that's a quick response, not that we invented it in a day, it's that we invested in long-term projects that then enable us to quickly mobilize. So for example, in my city of Boston, the former chief data officer spent a couple of years of his life building a citywide data warehouse. So our current uh, chief data officer was able to, in about a week's time, spin up both a public facing dashboard, people like me can look at, but also uh, private dashboards with more confidential information for the mayor. And in a week, she could turn that around and uh, make it happen because of the long-term investment. Same thing in the um, uh, Commonwealth of Virginia, chief data officer there had, um, in response to the uh, opioid epidemic, had developed integrated data systems that brought nonprofit and public and private sector and uh, government, state, local, federal, all these sources together into this dashboard that then he was able to just repurpose for the pandemic so that the governor could very quickly see where do we need PPE? Where are their hospital beds? Um, and where do we have supplies that we can get there? Um, so the pandemic shone a light on data and digital solutions that happen very quickly. You know, another example is the city of Miami had been working for, you know, a year or more on its digital tools, public facing website, some, uh, you know, completely user friendly navigation, and then bringing services online. And the acceleration of existing progress was, uh, as the Chief Innovation and Data Officer there, Mike Sarasti said, nothing like 
death breathing down your door to uh, provide the inspiration to uh, move quickly. But so those are just a handful of the many, many examples where it was existing commitments by the governor, by the mayor that enabled the data and digital and innovation leaders to just on a dime make something happen uh, in response to the pandemic. What are the challenges to sharing data across government? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, Silo Busting, the Challenges and Success Factors for Sharing Intergovernmental Data. Jane, in your report for the IBM Center, you identify four key success factors that are common across the two data sharing models we discussed earlier. I would like to explore the key success factors you identified that's related to leadership in this area. Yeah, you know, I think if uh, I do have four success factors, but I think if I could only pick one, it would be leadership because it's the leader who rallies the troops to say, this is important, I'm going to invest in it. And, um, you know, my uh, city of Boston mayor, Marty Walsh, um, you walk into his office and the entire wall, and it's this enormous, uh, I, I can say it's one of the ugliest buildings in my city, but um, the mayor's office has a an enormous wall that is just covered in uh, digital displays so that he can keep tabs of various different dashboards. And there's a leader who is very publicly connecting to data and reinforcing that data matters. And, and then, you know, the other example from... Um, where I live in Massachusetts, Governor Baker and his leadership on the opioid crisis, you know, being very public about it um, and investing uh, both time and money and uh, clout. Jane, can you identify some critical success factors related to the teams managing the work around data sharing? Oh yeah, you know, for a team, think about it, it's really important that the team is all rowing in the same direction. And the way that happens is when you have a leader who can clearly articulate the why. What are we doing? Why does it matter? And that's really what gets people excited and will enable them to 
either toil the long hours or burn the candle at both ends or, you know, rejuggle priorities. You know, there was a book a while back that I read that was about a a rowing team that wasn't doing well. And of course, you know, as these stories go, of course, they they end up being wildly successful, but they had this mantra that was, will it make the boat go faster? And I think that's, to me, such an interesting way of, you know, if you could have one sentence that sums up where you're going, why you're going there, that whether it's a multi-year data infrastructure investment or a short-term sprint to get a new algorithm developed, whatever the thing is that you're working on, if you know why, you know, will this make children get to school faster? Well, back when we had buses, right? Or, you know, will this make children succeed in learning to read? Will this make our streets safer? You know, if we can be focused on why we're doing it, what's the public value, that's tremendously inspirational. And then, of course, being able to uh, I like to think of a sort of a two by two matrix where there's um, actually three dimensions. Um, you know, one is vision. Like, can I have that vision of why we're doing it? How are we going to make the world safer? Um, on the other axis is, do I have just the project management ability to, you know, line up step one, step two, step three. And then the the third kind of mystical, magical piece of it is, can I just relentlessly stay focused on delivery? Because it's really easy to get distracted, especially in this world of data and digital. There's always some like cool new technology. There's some interesting innovation that comes along. And it's easy to get focused on the thing that pops up instead of just like grinding it out and getting it done. And that's what a team leader can do. And, and it's tremendously important to have diverse skills on a team you know, back to, I mentioned I'm getting my kitchen redone after all this time resisting change. And, you know, you, you couldn't redo a kitchen with just a plumber or just an electrician. So a data team really needs to have people who understand the user experience, people who understand project management, people who can do data infrastructure, people who can do uh, data engineering, who can do data cleaning. You know, there's so many different jobs and um, people skills are what or the connective tissue, right? If you go, I guess, going back to my kitchen remodeling, um, you need someone who's going to communicate with the plumber, with the carpenter, with the electrician, with the tile guy, you know? So that kind of teamwork is facilitated by excessive, relentless communication and focus on the goal. So regarding the process for establishing and maintaining a data sharing effort, I was wondering, Jane, what are some of the key success factors related to getting the work done? I think one of the things I say in the process section of the paper is that it requires patience. And that is totally, it is totally true about a kitchen renovation as well. Um, I guess I'm going to have to eat those words, literally. Um, So, you know, when it comes to process, I think it's important, um, connecting back to what I said about team, you know, um, our process, it's easier to deliver on process when we have a clear path for where we're going. We have a uh, roadmap uh, and that we all know what our own role is. The other thing about process is that we do have to have patience because any data project is going to have derailments. There's going to be some crisis of the day that requires everybody to drop and you know, focus on something else. Then we're going to have to come back to it. Or there's going to be something, you know, kind of like a kitchen renovation. I had to have 
a gas pipe moved and it derailed the project for a little bit. And, you know, um, there's going to be someone who doesn't want to share the data. I, um, (laughs) for the, for the paper, I interviewed a bunch of people who run statewide longitudinal data systems, which are these cool integrated data systems that the federal government has spent almost a billion dollars on where states can connect from preschool to K-12 to university to wages. So that you can say, Hmm, did the Head Start program that Jane went to produce people who did well in school, went to college, got jobs, and, and you can do all these wonderful comparisons of programs and ask really interesting policy questions. But one of the, one of the um, state directors that I talked to said, oh, yeah, you know, we have everything but college data. I said, why? I said, oh, well, because the chancellor of the university system doesn't want to provide it. Hmm. So that's the kind of thing that could completely derail a project where that's one of the key steps is like, did people go to college and then what about their jobs, right? It would be so easy to just throw up your hands and give up when one of the important players says, I'm not going to come join your game. So that's why I think persistence is important and creativity, you know, like, okay, so we got to work around that. What are we going to do? And, you know, it's frustrating. And as a taxpayer, I'm horrified that federal tax dollars would go to build something that's missing a key piece because some person wants to be selfish. But, you know, the reality is we are all human. And I think that's actually, you know, when when we think about the technologies out there to do all kinds of amazing things. And sometimes what thwarts us is our human frailty. You know, we're afraid to share data. We're afraid to make change. We don't want to collaborate with that person because, you know, they hurt our feelings 15 years ago. You know, that stuff is real. And I've seen it out there. It's frustrating, but we got to just accept it and work around it as best we can. Jane, as you noted earlier, the data gathered by government agencies can be fraught with incompleteness and accuracy and other challenges. But these can be overcome, as you point out, with some care. So I was wondering, given your research, what are some of the key success factors related to caring for data? Well, I think for data, you know, I talked a little earlier about data quality issues. And that's something, let's not pick on government. That's true in the private sector as well. There was a look at credit scores and so on. And um, it turns out that um, more than one in five consumers has a potentially material error in their credit file that makes them look riskier than they would otherwise be to a lender. So I I don't want to just pick on government because there are data quality problems all over the private sector as well. Um, And, you know, last time I went to a bookstore and, you know, they they look in the system and they say, yes, we have that book on the shelves. And then it's not on the shelves because, you know, most inventory systems aren't all that accurate. I wanted to buy a pair of yoga pants. I go to one store, they say, oh, let me look, in the system, it shows there are two pairs of those yoga pants in your size at the other store. So I drive a half an hour to the other store and guess what? Oh, no, they don't have them. So I don't want to just pick on government because there are data accuracy problems everywhere. And then where do we have high quality data where we make the effort and care about it? And I I think I mentioned at the top of this uh, conversation about how uh, Governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, said we need to collect race and ethnicity data about COVID tests and COVID cases in hospitals. And boom, we went from 28 to 88 percent because he said, I care. We got to do it. Um, a friend of mine was recently applying for her Irish passport. So she had to collect some data. She had to get a, a grandparent's birth record from Ireland, their marriage record from 
the U.S. and then the death record from the U.S. And I was, you know, if I say to you, there's a, a record from 1889, a record from 1910, and a record from 1945, I bet most people would guess that the record from 1945 is the one that's most easily accessible. But as it turns out, she, uh, as a friend of mine, calls the church where her uh, grandparent was, or great-grandparent was baptized in 1889, thinking like, there's no way I'm going to get this, right? A record from 1889. She calls in the parish secretary says, oh, of course. Yes, it's right here. I can um, mail that out today. Okay, it's a paper record, but she's going to get a copy of that birth certificate. Why? Because the Catholic Church cares about birth, baptism, death records, and keeps them very accurately. So the 1910 uh, record of a marriage she calls the church, you know, so-and-so was married there in 1910. Can you give me the record? Oh, we don't have that. What? Oh, yeah, Father so-and-so said that marriage. And uh, when he changed parishes, he took all the records with him. Oh, huh, yeah, Father so-and-so really cares about the data. He has accurate data, but he carried it with me. Back to my whole thing about data mining, right? So then uh, this person dies in 1945. And so she tries to get the records. And from this government agency in the United States, she says, I would like the death record for so-and-so. And they said, well, you know, we can get you that, but it's going to take them three to six months because we're in the process. We have this warehouse full of paper records and we're in the process of digitizing it. And so it's going to take us a while. So who would have guessed that the records from 1889 were the easiest to get? And it's because when you care, you get it right. Back to my kitchen renovation, like I care about certain things in that kitchen being right. And when you care, you get it right. So I think with regard to data completeness, you know, there's a state in the U.S. that does not collect ethnicity data in their criminal justice records. Hmm, yipes. It's a state that has a very low population of Hispanics. They collect race data, but not ethnicity data. So, you know, at first I'm appalled, right? But then I realized, hmm, yeah, this isn't like the parish in the middle of nowhere, Ireland, that really cares about having accurate records about something that matters to them. In this particular state, they're not keeping track of it. You know, maybe they are now. But if it matters, you get it right. And frankly, a lot of stuff that we collect in, in government, we don't, you know, at the point of collection, we're not thinking about its downstream use. The first time I got COVID tested, they didn't collect my race and ethnicity data because People weren't thinking at the beginning that we have this tremendous racial and ethnic gap and we need to document it. So now we're doing a better job. But, you know, we need to have more strategic moments of reflection about what do we collect and why do we collect it? And let's not collect stuff we're not using. That's just, you know, a waste of taxpayer money. And whatever we're collecting, let's try to reuse it when we can. You know, I'm a big reduce, reuse, recycle person. I try to not waste stuff. So why in government are we wasting data when we ask the same person to enter the same data over and over and over again, when we could be much more customer centric and just ask once and then have the government agency that asked for it, not ask me again. You know, I worked years ago in the office in OMB that does the Paperwork Reduction Act. And Paperwork, Paperwork Reduction Act of 1973 says that we have to count the burden on the public of collecting data from them. Well, how about we start figuring out what's the burden on the public of asking them the same things over and over and over again? 
you know, and I'm not advocating some kind of like creepy big brother thing where the government knows everything about me. You know, CVS knows when I need to refill my vitamins even before I have run out of them because their algorithm tells them how to send me a vitamins coupon before I need them. So I, I'm not thinking government needs to be like that, but that government should make my life easier by not annoying me and asking me things that they should already know. How can we advance intergovernmental data sharing? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, silo-busting the challenges and success factors for sharing intergovernmental data. Jane, I'd like to turn to the recommendations you outline in your IBM Center Report, and you identify uh, recommendations for advancing intergovernmental data sharing. And the first one I want to touch on is how can Congress and the president create a policy and governance framework that define a broad data and digital excellence vision with incentives to act and a strong data governance infrastructure? Great. So first, let me start by describing my thoughts about how data and digital connect. Because some people use these terms like they're the same thing and they are not, okay? So for me at least, she says with great conviction. So, um, so <laughs> I care deeply about things that some people think are just totally nerdy. But so if you think about um, digital services, you know, how can I use a mobile app to apply for my building permit? How can I... Um, apply online for a government benefit? How can I interact uh, in a digital format with government? That creates electronic data on the back end. So digital is the experience of using a computer or a mobile app or, you know, text messaging to communicate with government, whether it's to, um, you know, put in a 311 request uh, for services, or whether it's to personally interact and, and get benefits. Okay, so digital services, very important, moving very quickly. Uh, you know, gold standard is really UK, Estonia, Singapore. You know, there's some awesome examples in the US, but as a nation, we're not quite up to where UK and Estonia are. Um, so that's the digital side. On the data side is using all the information and running machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, you know, using the, tool, the modern tools of analysis of data to find insight. Like who are the people most at risk for this disease? Who are the people most at risk of homelessness? How do we intervene with the children most at risk of being um, 
uh, subject to maltreatment or abuse. So the digital you can think of as the public facing and the data you can think of as the mining and uh, optimizing of the backend information that's collected by the digital services. So, you know, to me, the perfect world is where we're good at both data and digital. And so far, I don't know any example of a government anywhere that excels in both. Most are good at one or the other. Um, and, you know, there, there are data officers, there are digital officers, there are a couple places where someone's got the title of both data and digital. And to those people, I say that, well, even Superman and Clark Kent didn't do the same job at the same time. I think those are both separate full-time jobs. Um, so in terms of the data and the digital, I, I, I guess some of the recommendations that I have here, going back to what I mentioned before about don't make me keep telling the same government agency the same information over and over again. Uh, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. If you've got my data, government, use it wisely and don't ask for me again. Um, and, you know, I think we should have some kind of requirement that government assess its burden on the public of asking me again and again. Um, so, you know, let's say I move into a town and um, I've got to sign up for a library card, register for a dump sticker, register kids for school, register for uh, recreation services. You know, there's so many different services. Why couldn't one new, uh, new resident form populate all the different places? Um, so this is, of course, something, you know, that there are some people who would want to opt out. And I think that's great. People should be able to opt out. But I want to opt in to having government do the work for me. Um, so I, I think that's kind of a long-term vision. In the short term, we could get to a place of um, more cross-governmental linking of data if Congress, if philanthropy provide financial incentives for linking administrative data, survey data, uh, operational data, you know, there's so many different ways we can connect data and get insight. You know, um, those of us who are old enough to remember when Reese's started, uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, this, this ad where two people crash into each other and one's got chocolate, one's got peanut butter. Hey, who put chocolate in my peanut butter? Hey, who put peanut butter in my chocolate? So something much better than either chocolate or peanut butter came about because of the interaction of those two source data systems. So whether it's, you know, figuring out the skills of unemployed people that map to the jobs that are available, um, you know, how to optimize access to Wi-Fi and public housing so that kids can actually keep going to school online, you know, like whatever it is where there are multiple systems that need to connect, let's make some more Reese's peanut butter by bringing systems together uh, across silos. So, Jane, that's a wonderful segue. I'm wondering, um, how can the federal government establish funding capacity building mechanisms that support implementation of increased data sharing across government? Well, I think one of the things is just to listen to each other. And, you know, interagency, uh, intergovernmental agency councils around data could just be a source of asking questions, listening, I ideation. And, um, you know, when feds listen to state and local government, they can really uh, get outside their own boxes. And I think that's enormously important. And especially, you know, I, I think 
we can use the current pandemic, both the health and the economic and the racial disparity aspects. And we can use those as a lens for thinking about like, well, how do we bring systems of data together to better understand the enormously complex, you know, the social determinants of health that are perhaps at play in some of the higher risk neighborhoods uh, for the pandemic. The thinking about how do we get education and workforce and unemployment, like how do we get housing and, you know, even air quality, like all these different factors that are at play in the hotspots of unemployment and um, COVID disease. So interagency uh, government data consoles, I think would be really, uh, really important and providing incentives for standard data sharing practices, right? So um, in Massachusetts, there were, I don't know, 40, 50, there were like way too many different templates for data sharing agreements. And when we had this uh, opioid crisis a few years ago and had to come up with data sharing agreements that would span 23 agencies, they actually came up with a standard template for sharing data. And um, they went from having, you know, the average time to reach an agreement taking half a year to being able to do it with one standard agreement, you know, again, 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 and just, uh, you know, dramatically increased the speed of sharing. And I think that's something, that's a model that, you know, some places have now got that in place. Uh, like Commonwealth of Virginia has a wonderful standard uh, way of sh sharing data. Um, and I think that what we need to do is, is replicate and, you know, if every state and local government could come up with standard data sharing agreements, it would rapidly speed the flow of data across the silos. So, Jane, one last question before we close. How does the focus on intergovernmental data sharing benefit the health, safety, prosperity, and well-being of the public? Oh, my goodness. Um, in every possible way. <laughs> um, so if we focus on data, I think there are a couple of things. One is that there really needs to be an investment in kind of the nuts and bolts of data infrastructure. Because um, it's one of, one of the people I interviewed said to me, there's no ribbon cutting ceremony for a data warehouse. And yeah, it's this kind of like unsexy, unglamorous stuff that these public servants who are so brilliant and so committed and you know, I'm just so grateful for the work that they do that never gets celebrated. And we really need investment in that stuff. And it's kind of like, you know, when they built the interstate highway system, it wasn't glamorous work to lay down the tar or whatever it is, but it's enormously valuable. And so I think we have to think of data infrastructure as the interstate highway system of the future of government. And then the next thing we have to do is invest in data literacy. So data literacy is low in government. It's low in the private sector too. Um, there was a, a survey of Fortune 1000 companies. And um, while 99% of firms are investing in big data and, and uh, advanced analytics projects, what percent are getting actual culture change? Only 27%. 
So only about a quarter ish are actually succeeding in transformational change. And the fundamental reason given is the data literacy of senior executives. And 55% of the senior executives said they thought they were a little too old to learn about this new fangled data stuff. So I think that to me is if, if we could invest in the infrastructure and provide the appropriate resources to all the brilliant data scientists and data architects and data engineers. And then if we could also liberate mid-level managers, senior managers from the fear of data through data literacy training, I think those two things would get us to the place where we have the tools, the vision, the leadership to take data and turn it into insight and then turn it into action that closes gaps between what is and what could be, where we get safer schools, safer streets, safer drinking water, um, and where we protect people from diseases and from environmental harms. So I, I, I know it's going to happen. I know it's not going to happen tomorrow. I think it's going to take a while. You know, the Allegheny County data warehouse in the human services uh, department took a decade. And it's one of the best. I mean, you ask 50 people and 49 or 50 of them will give you the example of the Allegheny County Human Services Data Warehouse as a tremendous example of intergovernmental data sharing. Um, but it didn't happen in a day. It happened in a decade. So, you know, we need to make investments and expect a little while before we get results. But it's going to be worth it. So, Jane, I want to thank you for joining me today and coming back on the show to discuss your new report, your latest report for the IBM Center, Silo Busting, the Challenges and Success Factors for Sharing Intergovernmental Data. Thanks again, Jane. Thank you so much for having me on. This is such a, a you know, such an inspiring topic when we think about what, what, what could be in the future and some of the wonderful stuff that's going on now. And I'm just so grateful to be able to spend some time with you sharing this. Thank you. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, Silo Busting, the Challenges and Success Factors for Sharing Intergovernmental Data. You can download this and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.